In the U.S., the district attorney has a huge influence on the criminal justice system, deciding who gets prosecuted and for what, recommending how long they serve if convicted, even deciding who faces the death penalty. So what happens when the usual tough-on-crime DA gets replaced by someone determined to bring transformational change to prosecution. That's the story of Larry Krasner, the unlikely Philadelphia DA, and that's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your all-purpose justice nerd and your personal guide to everything in the criminal justice system. And yes, it's true, still have that wonderful day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Criminal Injustice, our podcast, goes back Five years. We launched in the wake of the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, and so many others to attempt to expose why these terrible things kept happening and how the criminal justice system could be changed reformed and reimagined. And while deaths at the hands of police were one such outcome that we were interested in and looked at, they were not the only ones. And the problems we examined weren't limited to the important issues we see involving police. We discussed mass incarceration and the injustice that is the cash bail system. We looked at jail populations and charging practices. And one thing that a lot of these issues have in common is that they are all touched. In fact, some of them are driven by the policies, practices, and ideologies of the people who serve as chief prosecutors on the local level in the United States. In this country, our chief prosecutors, variously called things like district attorney, state's attorney, or county prosecutor, these people are elected to that office. This is actually quite unusual. In most places in the world, people bringing criminal charges do not run for election, and electing prosecutors can result in these officials taking politically aggressive stances, and that, from at least the 1980s onward, became the default position for prosecutors, taking tough and then tougher positions on crime and criminals. Little thought to root cause remedies or rehabilitation, just retribution. And the more severe, the better. For a long time, it was nothing but I'm tough, keeping you safe. And that political use of the tough on crime theme and rhetoric has led us directly to mass incarceration and a host of other problems. Now, we were not, of course, the only ones thinking about the importance of what the prosecutor does and how it affects the whole system. Far from it. Lots of scholars, academics, but also people on the ground and people in politics. In fact, in roughly the same time frame that we were born here as a podcast, a whole lot of people in some of our major cities began to think about the outsized power of the prosecutor and how that power had been used in ways that had a decidedly negative impact on black and brown communities. Prosecutors supporting aggressive policing, recommending high bail amounts that kept poor people locked up prior to trial just because they could not afford minimal amounts of bail, and pushing long sentences that packed state prisons with a huge and disproportionate number of people of color. And some of those people thinking about this prosecutorial power decided to take this power on, to try to actually take that power of the prosecutor's office the old-fashioned way, through elections, and to have the office drive reform and transformational systemic change through new policies and a real switch in prosecutorial practices. One of the first such prosecutors elected, people just generally use the shorthand progressive prosecutors. Larry Krasner was sworn in as district attorney in Philadelphia in January 2018. 
Krasner had never served as a prosecutor. He'd never held public office, unlike many of his opponents in the election. In fact, he'd sued the Philadelphia police 75 times in civil rights cases as a lawyer. And he'd represented Black Lives Matter protesters, Occupy protesters, anarchists, you name it. To say his candidacy was not taken seriously is an understatement. The head of the city's Fraternal Order of Police, Union Local, called his run ridiculous. But Krasner's calls to end the use of cash bail, to roll back mass incarceration, to stop prosecuting low-level offenses, to end police misconduct that impacted the cases the DA's office was handed, the old guard lock em up crowd may not have heard him, but the people of Philadelphia did. After he defeated a raft of opponents in the election primary, he beat his general election opponent in a landslide, carrying 75% of the vote in an election and generating 50% greater turnout than in the last contested DA election. It turns out that the people of Philadelphia were indeed listening, had engaged with the campaign, and they wanted change. Not so ridiculous after all. Here is some audio from WHYY in Philadelphia of Mr. Krasner on the night of his decisive win. And he is clear that it's not about him. His election is the result of a movement. Story about the history of kings and queens. This is a story about a movement. That's right. And this is a movement that is tired of seeing a system that is systematically picked on poor people, primarily black and brown. In the time since, Krasner has taken on the issues he promised to, and it's been a fight. The old guard isn't willing to just say, okay, you won, go ahead. No way. On this episode, we have the good fortune to have a conversation with District Attorney Krasner himself on the occasion of a new multi-part series showing us how this unlikely lawyer became DA and what he's done to move his office and the whole criminal legal system in Philadelphia in a very different direction. So let me introduce you. Larry Krasner is the district attorney of Philadelphia. Several years into his term at this point, we can all get a look at how he got there and what he has done since in the new multi-part documentary series, Philadelphia DA. The series premiered at Sundance, and we can all see it beginning April 20th of 2021 on most PBS stations. It's an all-access journey with the cameras there from the beginnings of the campaign through the first days in office. We are the proverbial flies on the wall in some of the crucial meetings, the one-on-ones in the office, and the battles that break out over police misconduct. I've seen some of it, and folks, you want to see this. It is really good. It is compelling. It is about something quite important. People trying to do the right things in a tough environment. Watch it. And just for good measure, Mr. Krasner's new memoir called For the People about his career and experiences up to the time of his swearing-in will be published the same day by Penguin Random House. We have links to the series and the book up on our website. Larry Krasner, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Uh, It's never good to be around injustice, but it's good to see you, David. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I'm glad I see you too. So uh, here's the first question. Why? Uh, Seth Williams, your predecessor uh, in office, had gone to prison for a personal corruption scandal, and there was going to be an open election for the office uh, without an incumbent. But let's face it. I mean, you seem like an unlikely candidate for the office. You hadn't held public office before. You were a civil rights lawyer, not a former prosecutor. What made you say to yourself, uh, I could do this, I should do this. Ultimately, I've got to do this. Why? It was really, um, I mean, some of it was just life experience, but it was really 30 years in the criminal courts. I was a very, very active trial attorney, primarily in criminal defense, but also in civil rights. And so four to five days a week, I was watching the goings on in court. 
uh, working really hard, trying to do a good job as a public defender first and then as a private attorney. But she could not help but see that your efforts, no matter how vigorous, were not turning the tide. What was happening the entire time was even though I was getting some justice for my clients, the system was more and more unjust. You had mass incarceration sweeping the nation. You had just terrible decision-making going on on the parts of prosecutors. They really were not for the people. They were more like enemies of the people. Um, and, and I couldn't take it, honestly. I came up on yet another election cycle. Like all the candidates were predictable. The incumbent was still in the race at that time, by the way. And I figured wow. I figured I might as well, you know, wreck my future by running, losing, and then getting my brains beat out in court ever after, either by Seth Williams or whoever else won. So I did. And, and of course, the amazing thing is all my years of working with activists, which was kind of my professional hobby. I used to represent protesters for free. And right. I did that for a long time. All of that uh, proved to me a very complicated thing, which is that um, protesters actually do politics better than politicians. And most people hate politicians. So if you actually mean what you say and say what you mean, and you can show that you've done something in your career that sounds like what you're saying, you can win. So you said from the beginning, and you just mentioned it again, uh, that you were focused on issues like mass incarceration, cash bail, uh, prosecution of low-level crimes that seem silly or unnecessary. Why were those issues at the forefront for you, and, and maybe what others were there with them? So here I am. I'm about 55 years old. I'm driving around because you do that a lot as a trial lawyer. And as I go all over the city, a city I actually love very much, we have um, school buildings for sale, literally with for sale signs on them. Schools. School building, public school buildings for sale. Meanwhile, they put up a new courthouse and we have, uh, you know, more and more people who are being incarcerated. It just doesn't make sense. We had we had needs for mental health treatment, needs for drug treatment, needs for all kinds of things that actually prevent crime, but we couldn't afford any of it because we we're so smitten with locking everybody up forever. And so these particular issues really are a way into some other kinds of social problems that that rear their head in Philadelphia and so many other cities. Um, and the, the film really does get at some of that and what you said before about this being part of a movement, uh, that people wanted something different and you'd been engaged with them, um, and, uh, that your candidacy and then your election was really the result of this movement. Uh, and was looking to have direct impact, not just on criminal justice, but on freeing up resources for some of these other problems and remedying these things that had impacted so directly and so negatively black and brown communities basically just forever. I mean, you were thinking about it that way from the beginning, or did it become apparent to you as you kind of went along and were carried along by this movement? You know, I uh, my evolution and thinking about it basically went from the moment I got into the criminal justice system and then progressively over all those years, I, I saw what it was. But it was also a reflection of having represented so many groups of activists uh, whose movements I had to study in order to defend them in court. And when I realized where we were, you know, I looked around, we had a couple of wonderful progressive DAs elected around the country. We had Aramis Ayala in Orlando. We had Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. We had Kim Fox in Chicago. In County, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, when we, when you looked around and saw, and, and many others, but when you saw that, you realized something was going on. It wasn't that I or any of us was so important. What was going on was that the politicians, the institutions had it wrong. People deeply wanted to end mass incarceration. They deeply wanted to have a more just system, one that was accurate, one that was fair. They were tired of what was going on. And that was why the movement was electing people around the country and re-electing them now, by the way, in many different locations. You may not know this, but as we sit here, 10% of the United States has elected a progressive prosecutor who is making decisions with their significant discretion and power in those jurisdictions. And they're big jurisdictions. So what that means is that if you're talking about mass incarceration, the drivers of mass incarceration are big jurisdictions. Look at Los Angeles, the largest criminal justice jurisdiction in the United States just last year elected George Gascon to be its progressive prosecutor. That's going to have a huge impact on the California, not just LA, but California's level of incarceration. Absolutely. Uh, 
And so we are, we are seeing that it's really not about any of us as individuals. And I say that with great respect uh, for my colleagues, it's not about us. It's about a grassroots movement, which in my view is the direct result of the crushing weight of mass incarceration and the philosophy that justified it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned some incredible people there. George Gascon, who was a guest of ours way back in our second season, Kim Fox in Cook County, Illinois, Armas Alayev down in Florida, so many others. Um, and it brings a question that I think has to be asked. Did it matter to you, to the activists, to anybody that you uh, were not a person of color, that you were a white man challenging this system that had been a crushing weight uh, for people of color? You know, I certainly cannot psychoanalyze them, but I can tell you this, uh, it did not matter to Black Lives Matter that I was white when I was defending them. When Black Lives Matter, Matter was a more controversial phrase and name, when they didn't have that cachet, my firms and my willingness to defend them for free wasn't blocked by the fact that I happened to be a white man. Um, I can tell you my number one voter was a 60-year-old African-American woman. And the if you look at the demographics of the people who strongly supported our campaign, and I'll say strongly because, in fact, we got more votes than any DA campaign in at least 20 years in Philadelphia. Yes. And I say that as an unknown politician, right? Um, <clears throat> it wasn't me, but this alliance was 60-year-old African-American women. That was my number one voter. It was African-Americans in general. It was millennials of all different you know, groups. And it was working class white people if we sat down and talked to them. When we actually canvassed them, knocked on the door, came in the living room, talked to them, they might or might not agree on the death penalty, but they agreed that there should be more money in public schools, that they'd rather have a teacher for $60,000 than have another homeless person sitting in a jail cell for a year for $60,000. Um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And, and I'm delighted to help out a movement as one more of its technicians. Yeah. So you, 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 you actually get elected. And I say actually with the kind of surprise that I'm sure people express to you. And I saw you express in the film that, you know, you were, you didn't, you weren't shocked that you won, but you were shocked maybe at the degree of it. It was a landslide, 75 to 25% roughly. And, you know, you, you're kind of there. Now you're going to do it. Now you're going to actually have the the chair and the desk and the levers and so you get a top team together you get dana dana i'm sure i'm saying her name kind of wrong basilon and you get bob listenby and uh, so many other great lawyers and you got to create things set policy announce policy and you have so you have two things kind of going on at the same time you got to get the, the the new rules in place create the new expectations and environment and you got to get the new team in place inside the office and some of the folks were on board with it and some of them were not and there had to be kind of a transition one of the scenes in the movie is uh the friday after you take office on i think a monday uh there's a whole lot of firing going on and uh that wasn't the greatest day in the history of your administration i suppose uh but you have to get these things done. Can you talk about how those two things have to be done simultaneously? Kind of the old cliche of uh, building the plane while you're flying it. Yep. <clears throat> it's, you know, it's a great question. I had a chance to visit with Kim Fox shortly before I took office and we talked through some of these issues. And, uh, and of course, you can write all the policies you want in your office. If you're giving it to a culture that doesn't feel like doing it, they will eat your policies all day long. So you have to work vigorously at culture change at the same time that you are working at, uh, you know, using an evidence-based approach to studying policies and changing policies. And we did that. We actually met our very top priority in the administration, recruiting. As I sit here today, we are now three plus years in, and we have hired most of the attorneys in the office. Uh, it makes a tremendous difference when you hire mission-driven people who believe in criminal justice reform, very, very talented, diligent people with moral compasses intact. It makes a huge difference. But that's not where we were on day one. On day one, we had to just take the very first step. And, you know, five days in, we did fire some people. We, we fired about 30 attorneys out of 300. That is 10%. Um, it's actually less than a lot of my predecessors fired. I think less. Yeah, it's fewer. You know, Ed Rendell, <clears throat> who was the DA as a young man before he became 
uh, you know, mayor and then governor and then best friends of Bill Clinton, has said he fired 25%. And Arlen Specter, uh, you know, allegedly was not shy about firing every single person from uh, the opposing political party when he became DA in Philadelphia as a young man. So there's nothing strange about firing some people. We just did it for reasons that were not politics or something else. And we did it in smaller numbers and it was a national kaboom. Oh my God, this is terrible. How could you possibly do it? <laughs> it it's the criticism we always face, which is, which is that um, we're not supposed to do anything now that the people chose us and we're in office. But I will say that was only step one. And then came a process of education, a process of trying to equalize compensation because it was discriminatory compensation here, equalized supervision. So we had more diverse supervision and increasing all kinds of diversity within the office, within the office which has happened ever since. Um, that is how you achieve culture change. We're still working at it. It's gonna take quite some time. Right, culture change is key in any organizational shift. That is for sure. So as you're doing these things, the policies and shifting and changing the culture and the personnel to have the right kind of culture, yeah, uh, the third major issue that we see in these first couple of episodes uh, rears its head, and that, of course, is uh, the police. Um, the DA, as I understand it, does not have any formal authority to change the police department, the police policies, anything like that. Um, I mean, if if police officers are committing crimes, uh, of course, you prosecute them if they're in Philadelphia. But very quickly, we see something that brings these issues into a kind of must deal with this now uh, posture. And that is the discovery of something called the do not call list. And this happens early in your tenure. And I, I really was stunned. We see in the series a file is discovered in this disheveled room of boxes and boxes of files. A file is discovered that says damaged goods. And it's a file full of reports on various police officers who the office should not call as witnesses. Talk about that issue emerging, what it meant, how you had to deal with it. So <clears throat> it was uh, certainly a moment. I had sued Philadelphia police over 75 times during my career. My specialty within civil rights was basically uh, police brutality, people who had been framed by police officers, things of that sort. So I knew a good deal about the reality of the Philadelphia Police Department. Like many big city police departments, it had its share of bums and crooks. And um, yet those bums and crooks I saw in court all the time testifying. Often I saw them promoted to supervisory positions. We had a number of them who were taken down to federal court, put on trial for several weeks for um, allegations of sweeping corruption and then acquitted by an all white jury shortly thereafter the Philadelphia police promoted the main one. That's the culture that we had here. And we had it for, for a reason that applies in Philly, but it applies in many other places, which for a long time, which is that for a long time, it has been very good politics for a district attorney who has ambitions to run statewide to be cozy with the police union. So, you know, it's actually quite simple. We are supposed to work with the police like we work with the community. Mm -hmm. We're also supposed to lock them up when they commit crimes like we do with the rest of the community. That list was a list in name only. A lot of those people testified all the time. The information that the DA's office had on them, which had to be provided under the U.S. Constitution to the defense, was not provided. There was some magical thinking going on about what our Brady rights, meaning a defendant's right to know everything that helps him about a case, is within this office. So we saw that there was this thing, which in my opinion was a list in name only. It really mostly existed just so there was some level of plausible deniability when everything hit the fan and it became clear that for years, this organization, the DA's office had been a cover-up organization for police misconduct. But we decided to make it real. We had a, you know, we have a, a pretty wonderful head of our conviction integrity unit named Patricia Cummings, who uh, working with others came up with the idea of a police misconduct database, not a list, but an actual database, which compiles information on police officers who have been found to be liars, who have had various, uh, you know, very negative pieces of information about them. And that database automatically connects that information to a new arrest. If we have a new arrest, an officer so-and-so, badge number 2345 is in there, any information 
about that officer that needs to be in a file connects to the file immediately. Every now and then it means we don't even charge a case because you know it's one officer who is so bad that we're not going to call him. And, and unfortunately, we're dealing with this officer because the police won't do anything. Yes, that officer, uh, you know, but it's other things, too. Not every single person on the list is necessarily terrible. Some of them may have had, you know, for example, an arrest in another jurisdiction while they were on vacation for driving under the influence of alcohol. That doesn't mean they're liars. It doesn't mean they cannot testify. But it might in a particular case where they where they are, you know, accusing someone else of driving under the influence. It might mean that if they get silly and say, well, I wouldn't know, counselor, I've never been arrested then ding, ding, ding. Oh my goodness. I guess we do have something that had to be turned over because, um, because of that statement. So yeah. that's what we have going on now. And to some extent, it has become a national model for many jurisdictions. We are, you know, this is how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to be fair. Um, I will say this though. No, we don't control police procedure. We don't intend to do that. But if you commit a crime, we can prosecute you and should prosecute you just the same way we'd prosecute anyone else. And the other thing is, if the police departments here and elsewhere are listening, then they will understand that a police officer who's never going to be able to testify in a courtroom should be doing work that will never require them to testify in a courtroom. Right. And that does have an impact because at least in Philadelphia, a lot of police officers make a ton of money off of testifying. They get paid a lot of overtime. We're talking a whole lot of overtime, sometimes almost as much as their main pay for testifying. If the DA's office comes to the conclusion that a small number of police officers are so toxic and so unlikely to be truthful that they can't testify at all, then it is a punch in the wallet for those officers. And it's a punch in the culture because the younger officers who are watching that big cheese are seeing that that big cheese isn't making the money anymore, isn't going to court anymore. There's a commotion about it. So there are things that we do that indirectly do have a profound impact on police culture. Yeah, I'd like to just just tail back into one thing you said in that answer, and that is there is a constitutional obligation for the prosecutor to disclose any information that may have an impact on guilt or sentencing to disclose that to the defendant. And that is something that was not happening. When you say it's a list, but nothing was happening to it, that's the thing that should happen first. It should be given to the defense. And if it's given to the defense, it will often mean that that person, that police officer, can't be used as a witness because they would be damaged. And so that is something that is now happening, I assume. And then what kind of scale? Now, with your database, how many officers are we talking about in the Philadelphia Police Department now who really can't testify? Uh, excuse me. It's not a huge number who cannot testify. Um, we have 6,500 active police officers. Now there are some people who have retired who are on the list as well. I can't give you an exact number, but I can tell you, you know, we're dealing with at least a few hundred people who are in a category where either they cannot testify or there better be a, a darn good reason to let them testify. Like we have a video that shows that every single thing this person is saying is true, uh, something of that sort. It's, you know, it, it's important that there be a level of accountability and candor coming from police officers. It's not a good thing that everybody knows what the phrase test a lie means in a courthouse. You know, that's right. not, not a good thing. So, um, so it's important that we maintain a standard of integrity when it comes to the cases that we put forward. Yeah. Let's uh, take a quick break here. We're with Larry Krasner. He's the district attorney of Philadelphia, and we're talking to him about his work in his office, the changes he's made. And we're doing this because uh, of the April 20th premiere on PBS stations of Philly DA. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. Our guest on this episode is Larry Krasner. He is the elected district attorney of Philadelphia, and he is also the subject, along with his administration, his election, all the circumstances, the subject of a documentary series that will appear on PBS on April 20th. The documentary is called Philly DA. Uh, Larry, we were talking before the break about the 
the impact of the DA's work policies and practices on police misconduct. And it's fair to say that um, the police department, but certainly the FOP, they have been uh, basically your enemies since the beginning. I hope that's not too strong a term, um, but uh, you probably expected that this would not be an easy thing to do, to shift the culture, change direction of prosecution and criminal justice in Philadelphia. Um, you, but you've had a lot of opposition. Of course, you're not alone. Kim Fox, uh, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, all of what we call the progressive prosecutors have had a lot of opposition from the sort of traditionalist forces. What would you say about that? What's that been like? Has it hampered your efforts? You know, that's true. Kim Gardner in St. Louis, the land of my birth, has had a lot of rocks thrown at her. So has Rachel Rollins, who's been very courageous. In, that's uh, right. In Boston. In Boston. Uh, Rachel got there a little bit after me. Kim got there before me. Um, it's, it's part of the game. I mean, look at Los Angeles. You have in Los Angeles a progressive prosecutor who was a career cop. This guy was a beat cop in L.A. Who George Gascon. George Gascon. He became the chief of police in two major cities. And the FOP, or whatever they call it there, the Brotherhood of Police, the union, they don't like to say union because they used to put down unions, that organization has been at his throat in, in every prosecutorial job he has had. Why? Because he knows where the skeletons are buried, and he believes in justice and even-handed treatment. So yes, it's a problem, but I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about the rank-and-file cop. That is not what I'm talking about. These unions are rogue, and I say that because people need to know a couple of things. Number one, they are ruled by their retired membership. In Philly, we have about 6,500 active police officers. The membership of the FOP in Philly is almost 20,000. So you're not dealing with the voice of a modern police officer who, you know, and, and modern police officers are more diverse in terms of gender and race. They frequently have an experience with someone in the family having had addiction that is taking them to a different place about how we deal with this than the war on drugs mentality. The retired membership of the FOP is obviously older. It is whiter. Uh, it is more male. And it is more Republican. The leadership of the FOP on the strength of its retired membership has now endorsed Donald Trump twice in Philly, a town that is seven eighths Democratic, and they have done it twice without even taking a vote of its active membership. These are, these are right-wing, hardcore Republicans, and I'll just give you a little sampling of what that leadership stands for, because I think we should not blame the membership for this. They didn't make this. Uh -huh. They stand for, yes, you can wear a Nazi tattoo visibly while you are in uniform. They stand for the statement, and this is from the leader, uh, that Black Lives Matter is a, quote, pack of rabid animals, unquote. You know, that's what we're talking about. Wow. We are talking about a throwback, Archie Bunker, retired leadership that is not reflective of uh, modern active police officers. So I, and you know, stereotypes fail us. They fail liberals, they fail conservatives. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna come down that way, but these unions are gonna have to face up to something, which is that they cannot have the most extremist right-wing leadership in their unions and simultaneously elevate the profession, simultaneously elevate the people who have integrity within the department because inevitably the bullies and the bums and the crooks take over when you don't hold them accountable. And then you really need some culture change. I'll tell you, um, one of the things that one gets from the film, and I know you aren't the film. The film is a representation of you and your work, the work of your office. But when you see the, the supporters of your campaign and the people who are, who are there for you, and the change in your office versus the crowds of people who oppose you. I mean, a viewer cannot help but notice um, the, the fact that the opponents of Larry Krasner and, and, and the uh, uh, allies of the FOP are basically all white and the supporters uh, that you have are uh, a lot of black and brown folks, a mixed crowd, is this, does this somehow come down to race, racism, a racial politics thing? Well, you know, it's, first of all, I agree. The film is not about me. Thank goodness. That'd be an awful boring. <laughs> it's 
Well, the first the first episode might lead you to think that, but what happens is pretty soon the, the film blossoms into portrayals of eight or nine different yes. people who are making change in the office. And then some of their opponents outside the office, some of their allies, some people who have been themselves impacted, people dealing with being on probation and parole. It becomes a much richer, more robust portrayal of what's going on. And uh, more interesting for that, yes. Well, definitely more interesting because it's not about me, but um, that, that all being the case, uh, yeah, does it come down to race? Well, you know, it's ironic because like I'm an old white guy, right? I'm, I'll be 60 as of, well, today. And um, happy birthday. So, <laughs> well, thank you. And so um, I'm not a perfect representation of diversity in a position of power, yet it is inescapable that our support our best voter it was a 60 year old African-American woman. Why? Uh, I think the truth is we've all seen the same thing. I've seen it as a professional. They've seen it in their communities. They've seen it sometimes in their families or they've seen the neighbor kid get crushed by a system that makes things worse instead of better. It is about race in this sense. Black and brown people have always been trampled by America's criminal justice system, but they're not the only ones. Poor people have also been trampled and other marginalized groups. Gay and lesbian people, transgender people, people who are undocumented immigrants from other countries have been trampled for a very long time. Sex workers, they have been trampled. They're either trampled because they have some sort of status that is considered in a place and time to be illegal, or they're trampled because they have some kind of status that is disfavored. Um, yes, those are the people who support the work that is getting done here. Like I said, this is a movement. This is truly not about me. It's not about any of these people who are the so-called leaders. We are leaders only in the sense that we are elected to make decisions and to make those decisions consistent with the philosophy that this movement supports. But here's the big secret. I think everybody's missed in politics for a long time. Most people in many places are marginalized. Most people are outsiders. If you look at Philly, the white population here and that would be those who are insiders, not marginalized, but also those who are broke and living in the street and addicted to drugs and sex workers. That's 40%. 60% of the population of Philadelphia is black or brown. That's what this city is. And you know, one thing that black and brown people figured out a long time ago when they had no choice but to vote for white people because there were no black candidates is that they want the work. They want the ideas. They wanted to get done. They have been led and misled by people of all backgrounds, and they just want the work to get done. So it certainly is about race in part. That is probably the biggest part of it in that black and brown people have been stepped on the most by this criminal justice system. But it's also about all these other different groups. That difference, when it comes together, equals power. And that is why we are sitting in a country where 10% of the population has elected a progressive prosecutor and those prosecutors have more power than a random 10% of prosecutors in the country because they have such big jurisdictions, because they can slam the brakes onto mass incarceration, just like old school prosecutors slam the gas and cause the mass incarceration. So right now, Philadelphia, like some other cities, is experiencing a spike in violence, particularly shootings, killings by by firearm and so forth. This is obviously a challenge for the police, but also for your office. I expect you're getting questions about, is this your fault? Uh, but I'd like to see if we could put it in another way. I mean, how are you meeting this challenge? What does the DA's office do in a circumstance like this? What do you not do? We do the crazy thing. We push for real solutions, which is not what politics is good at. Politics is good at saying, how can I put a big shiny bandaid band on this problem? Because my incumbency requires me to run every four years or every two years. That's what politics does. The real solutions here are in the arena of prevention. Yes, there are some things in enforcement that can be done as well, but the real solution here is in the arena of enforcement. And so, for example, if you look at some of the excellent measures in Los Angeles with their GRYD program, if you look at some of the things that were done when Cook County, meaning Chicago, got together $70 million to invest in community-based organizations uh, a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and you see that that was part of a series of measures that led to a 35% reduction in gun violence in certain areas of the city. 
that's where you really need to go. If you want to see long-term declines in, in violent crime and you want to see long-term declines in your jail population freeing up money for things that work better, then the place you need to, to go is you got to save the money you're this, you got to save the money in jails and you have to invest it into community-based organizations that do a better job of preventing crime. To me, this, you know, the, the usual approach, which of course we're all in danger of adopting when you do have a scary situation with high homicides all over the country, high shootings all over the country. Uh, you know, the scary move is that everybody doubles down on what never worked, which is we need more police boots on the ground. Yes. We need longer sentences. Give me mandatory sentencing. Everything that failed before. Thank you. Can I have some more? of it. You know, that's the real danger because it feels good. Well, think of that if you were in medicine, okay? We have we have an epidemic at certain points in US history of people suffering from lung cancer due to the ingestion of tobacco smoke. We had a choice there. We could have said, "All right, let's invest a lot of money in lung surgeons because that's how we're going to get a hold of this problem. We're going to cut lungs." Really? Or maybe we did the right thing. Maybe what we did is we invested in things that went in, in the direction of prevention. And so even though we haven't rid ourselves of, you know, what is arguably, uh, along with alcohol, the most harmful drug that, uh, you know, in the world, even though we haven't rid ourselves of it, we have prevented a ton of harm that would have come by going with the prevention approach. That's, that's the real big answer. Now, putting it in context, which I think is very important, because if we don't put it in context, we're all going to fail to communicate what's happening here. What we see is that among 34 cities that provided data, these are bigger cities, there was a 40% increase in homicides and shootings during 2020. It was supposedly the largest number of homicides in the history of the United States that year, Okay, which means that this is a national problem. Among those 34 cities, if we look at the cities, we see two things. Number one, if you count it, number one is the worst in terms of increase in this gun violence. And number two is the second worst in terms of this increase. Philadelphia was down at number 23. You know, there were 22 cities that had an even more difficult time with increase, about 10 that had a less difficult time. Look at those 22 cities. You have traditional prosecutors, Republican prosecutors, Democratic prosecutors, progressive prosecutors. You have prosecutors of all types on that list who are experiencing the, same, experiencing the same kind of terrible increases in gun violence at the same time as the whole country has experienced some decreases in crime overall. Um, as Jim Carful used to say about a different topic, it's the pandemic, stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the pandemic. This is what's going on. And if you want to know how you know that intuitively, well, you know that high school classrooms are closed. You know summer camps are closed. You know job programs are closed. You know normal em employment at the lower dollar end of the economy. You know, helping out the, the solo contractor with the rusty van. You know that that's gone. Swimming pools closed. Recreation centers closed. All organized sports. I'm 60 years old. I have never seen sweeping closing of organized sports closed. And we know that the after-school programs, the art programs, houses of worship, they're all shut down. The programming is shut down. Young people are shooting young people. That's what's happening. Overwhelmingly, it is boys and men. But young people are shooting young people. That's exactly what's happening. We have never appreciated how incredibly important and protective it was to have this fabric of society in place because of how much gun crime, how much violent crime it presents. Well, we know now, and that means we need to come out of this instead of doing the stupid thing, which is building more jails. We need to come out of this, not only reinvesting in this normal fabric of our society, but doubling down on investments in these things that have been so protective, and then we will see lower gun crime. Larry Krasner is the elected district attorney of Philadelphia. His campaign for the office, his election, and his work reoriented the office towards a more progressive vision of justice. It's all the subject of a multi-part series called Philly DA, which you can see on PBS beginning on April 20th, 2021. His memoir, For the People, will be published the same day. We have links to both up on our website. Thanks so much for being my guest today. Thank you, David. It was great talking to you.
And now let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly, reported from sources literally too numerous to name, is Sidney Powell, the lawyer who behaved so badly that even former President Trump's legal team felt the need to distance itself from her. Because this is an unusual lawyer behaving badly pick, and because I have a feeling we'll be hearing about Lawyer Powell again here in this space, we're going to create a special category, Lawyer Behaving Badly, with a special citation for chutzpah. You may know this Yiddish term. It means something like nerve or gall, as in... Can you believe the nerve of that guy to throw himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan after he killed his parents? Well, that's where we find this episode's bad behavior. For those who don't know, Lawyer Powell was out in front of the Trump legal team in the time before and then after Trump lost the election, and she made some truly startling statements. She alleged acts, connections, and relationships that seemed just, well, hard to believe. Rather than having me catalog them for you, here she is in an interview on Newsmax in November after the election discussing what she led was the fraudulent scam in Georgia perpetrated by a voting technology company called Dominion that created a fraud designed to steal the election from Trump. In her own words... Georgia's probably going to be the first state I'm going to blow up, and, and Mr. Kemp and the Secretary of State need to go with it because they're in on the Dominion scam with their last-minute purchase or award of a contract to Dominion of $100 million. The State Bureau of Investigation for Georgia ought to be looking into the financial benefits received by Mr. Kemp and, and uh, the Secretary of State's family about that time. And another benefit Dominion was created to award is what I would call election insurance. That's why Hugo Chavez had it created in the first place. But I also wonder where he got the technology, where it actually came from, because I think it's hammer and scorecard from the CIA. So did you get that? Dominion Voting Systems is part of a gigantic fraud in which the company has bribed Georgia's governor and secretary of state and enrich their families. But Dominion, the company, was created by the late Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez based on CIA technology, and that this is all based on facts given to Powell and other Trump lawyers. Now, let's be clear. These are lies, and Lawyer Powell would certainly deserve this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly designation based on lying to the public about a presidential election. And the scale, scope, and repetition of these lies might also deserve our special citation for a chutzpah. But no, dear listeners, as we sometimes say, wait, there's more. After the election and the turn of the year, Dominion and another voting machine company, Smartmatic, began to file lawsuits, very big lawsuits, against the lawyers and other charlatans who perpetrated these lies against them, defaming the companies, damaging their businesses perhaps beyond repair, and destroying their reputations for honesty and integrity, something they absolutely must have in the public mind in order to do business in the sphere of elections. Among those lawyers who were sued, Lawyer Powell was sued for $1.3 billion. Not exactly pocket change. And it is her defense that garners the special citation for chutzpah. Because what, dear listeners, does she say to the defamation lawsuit to try at this early stage to get it dismissed? She can't very well say she didn't say these things. She said them at nationally televised events and on television and other news programs which generate recordings. She could say the statements she made are true, if they were, which they aren't. So that's out. So what's the defense? It is that they weren't facts at all, just political hyperbole, don't you know? Here is a quote from the brief filed in her defense. 
the very wild and outlandish nature of Powell's statements, the brief argues, means that, quote, reasonable people would not accept such statements as facts, but view them only as claims that await testing by the courts through the adversary process. Wow, did I tell you? Chutzpah! Wild and outlandish lies? Hey, no reasonable person would take that stuff seriously. They're just claims, just assertions. Well, I can think a few defenses that beat this. My lies about your business. And do note, listeners, that these lies are assertions of fact. You bribed the governor and other public officials. You stole votes when counting votes with integrity is your business. Your company is a creature of a socialist dictator. Those are assertions of fact. These lies should have been seen for the crazy stuff they were. I mean, just kidding. Who would believe that stuff? Well, I don't know, the people who made death threats against Dominion's officers and employees and people working for the Secretary of State's office in Georgia. How about people who stormed the Capitol, chanting, Stop the Steal, and who carried signs, some of them, about the nefarious doings of Dominion? How about the millions of Americans who still seem to believe the election was stolen with the help of Dominion? So with all of the votes tallied up, as it were, Sidney Powell, lawyer with a special citation for chutzpah, well-deserved. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and with it, another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review there will help people find us. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. If you've got a question about the criminal justice system, go to the Ask Dave area on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question if you want by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Call 412-407-3389. Again, that's 412-407-3389. Remember, we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.